I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the sixth chapter of Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, the last time we were together, we did begin the final paragraph of chapter 6, which incidentally doesn't end at chapter 6 and verse 18. It goes into chapter 7, verse 1. Um, Since we have these promises, these promises refer to that which preceded in the quotations that Paul gives of three Old Testament passages It's these passages of the Old Testament, um, one that is found in the book of Leviticus, chapter 26, one that's found in the 52nd chapter of Isaiah, and another that's found that's kind of debatable, where it's found, some say, 1 Samuel 7, and the promise that was given to David, some would say in other places in the Old Testament. But these uh, three passages of Scripture um, hold forth promises, Paul says, and since We have these promises, beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And that statement of 7-1 belongs to chapter 6. It's in the light of the promises that the passages of the Old Testament holds forth that Paul gives this word of encouragement uh, to cleanse ourselves from every defilement. Um, but the paragraph begins at verse 14. We did mention um, the contrasts that are between um, believers and uh, unbelievers, righteous, those who are righteous and those that are lawless, light and darkness, uh, Christ and Belial. That's Belial is an Old Testament word that we find in the Old Testament meaning worthless people, sons of worthlessness. Um, what, what chord does the supreme value of Jesus have with uh, that which is worthless? And uh, some think it's also a title that is uh, rightly to be attributed to Satan himself. Um, again, that's debatable, but it is possible. And then what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever and the temple of God with idols? And he concludes, for we are the temple of the living God, as God said. Now, when that this first ver- uh, 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 first verse of this section in verse fourteen, generally speaking, when that gets quoted in evangelical churches, what is the assumption that Paul is? Um, uh, uh, what is the assumption of what Paul is referring to when he says, "Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers." Those of you who have been in evangelical churches for a while, you've heard pastors perhaps refer to this. And what is it almost uh, invariably that they're telling you the passage refers to about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers? Vivian? Marriage. Marriage. In fact, in the uh, cross-reference system that I have in my Lagos uh, program uh, on my computer, uh, going through the different cross-references... They all refer to Old Testament prohibitions against marriage of pagan women or pagan people. That uh, the assumption is this is always talking about marriage. The the problem is, uh, first of all, that in the Corinthian letter, it doesn't seem as if that's a problem Paul's encountering. Uh, The problem in Corinth is not that believers are marrying unbelievers. 
the problem is that believers are being influenced by unbelievers in such a way as they are turning against their apostle. There are these teachers that have come among them. And Paul doesn't describe them fully in the beginning of the letter. Later on, he's going to talk about them more forthrightly. That they are bringers of another spirit, another gospel, another Jesus. Um, And in a real sense, I don't think he's considering these people to be Christians at all. And so it's these people that have come among the Corinthians and are... um, influencing them, influencing them by their perspective of the fact that, as he says earlier on in chapter 6, that these are the people who um, basically boast in appearance, I'm sorry, this is in chapter 5, chapter 5 and verse 12, uh, so that uh, you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. That's the problem with these people, is they're all concerned with externals. What looks good? What are the appearances of success? What are the appearances that we can now conclude? Well, God must be in this because look at the results. We're getting a lot of fruit. Look at all the people that are coming. Look at all the churches growing. Look at all the baptisms we are having. And almost invariably in our modern day, that's what gets appealed to when you have rascals in ministry that are exposed for the rascality They're exposed for the fact that they're ungodly people that are basically building their own kingdom. They're building a ministry around themselves and people will say, well, they ought to be excluded from ministry and somebody's going to chime in and say, but look at the fruit. And again, back to last week's morning message, what are they talking about? Look at the people that have professed faith under this ministry. They're not saying, look at the fruit of righteousness and holiness, the fruit of um, justice and peace and mercy and love, the fruit of the Spirit. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about the ministries born fruit, which means the coffers are filled, which means we're, we have this enterprise that's going on that we deem to be uh, of the Lord. Uh, but you look at the leader of the thing and you say, well, you know, <laughs> still, regardless, he ought to be excluded from ministry because he doesn't bear the fruits of righteousness. He does not qualify as a leader in accordance with biblical standards. But that's a problem in Corinth. They allowed people to come in uh, among them, and, and they weren't ceasing to ceasing their efforts to be persuasive. And not that everybody was convinced by these false teachers; um, many were not. But yet enough were convinced that Paul is seeing the dangers in the church of his authority in the church being undermined. And they're undermining him at many levels. And so what Paul's doing in the first half of the letter is he's addressing his apostolic authority, his apostolic ministry, the fruits of that ministry, uh, basically that, uh, and, and, the, and, and the message of the ministry, which is not being divisive, but rather reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. And, and so um, there's nothing here about marrying unbelieving people. So why, at the end of verse um, 13, in Paul's appeal to them, I've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, you're restricted by your own affections. Uh, There's been disaffection as a result of the influence of these false teachers. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. 
And then he goes on to say, and don't get married to unbelievers? It doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to fit. Whatever he's referring to about being unequally yoked with unbelievers, it certainly is not limited to marriage, and it probably doesn't have this principal reference marriage at all. And instead of all those verses that speak about not marrying unbelieving people or pagan people, worship people that worship idols, which is the um, you know the, the command in the Old Testament, lest your heart be taken away from the Lord, um, there's also a wider exhortation. And that's not just not to marry the, the idolaters of this world. It's to be free from their practices. Free from the practices of the Canaanites and the Egyptians. Free from the practices of the nations whose practices are abominable in the eyes of the Lord. That's what the cross references should be to. It should be to those who practice things that are rooted not in godliness but ungodliness, not in the worship of God but in idolatry, not in faith but in unbelief, not in uh, the temple of God but the temple of idols. That's the, that's the contrast. Because again, if you're under the same yoke with those that are worshiping idols, and they're not worshiping Christ, and Christ says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you're yoked with someone else that's learning from someone else and having a different understanding. They're pulling this way, you're pulling that way. Uh, chances are you can get pulled along with them as they move in a direction antithetical to Jesus and, and, and the gospel. So you've got to take off the yoke that's yoked together with unbelievers and put Christ's yoke upon you that you might follow him and learn of him. And so this contrast between uh, the partnership of, or the question, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? It's far more than just a question of marriage. Marriage certainly would enter in to the picture. Um, again, marriage is to be in the Lord. Paul says that in chapter 7 but that's not what he's teaching here he's he's talking about um, being the companion of fools and smarting for it as Proverbs says he's talking about uh, evil evil companions corrupting good morals as he says in the first Corinthian letter Um, he's saying be careful who influences you be careful who you allow to be your teachers be careful um, that you're not following those whose teaching and whose um, practices are, are not um, under the authority of God and his word and not being governed and uh, guided by the gospel. And the conclusion is we're the temple of the living God. And then that follows uh, that picture of the contrast. And again, it, there's just no breaching that antithesis. It's not saying that you hate unbelievers. You throw stones at unbelievers. You act unkindly to unbelievers. No, you witnessed unbelievers. You love unbelievers. You love your enemies. You're looking to bring them to the knowledge of the gospel. Um, But you don't get guided by them. You don't get governed by them. You don't get yoked together with them uh, because you're under Christ's yoke and you're to be uh, serving him and honoring him. Um, And what Paul does then is is he, he gives... Um, it's called a, 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 a katina. Anybody ever heard of the word a katina? And there's a musical thing that's similar to that. It's not that. It's a katina. C-A-T-E-N-A. And that's just simply a, a, a listing of verses. 
when verses get listed one after another, it's called a katina. That's what the scholars say. And I don't know where the word comes from or what it means, but the, it's just simply a, a, a chain, a chain of verses, links linked together. And so that's what Paul does. He gives a chain of verses uh, linked together. Uh, Le- Leviticus 26, um, Isaiah 52, and um, probably 1 Samuel chapter 7. Though again, there's some debate as to whether Paul's quoting here. Um, it's just saying, as God said, and uh, it could be a direct quotation, although there's varying, uh, mostly from the Septuagint, these translations come from, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, but this is God's word uh, to his people, and it's God's word to his people that hold forth promises. I want to, again, underscore that. 7.1 says, since we have these promises, beloved. What promises? Well, the promises held forth in these quotations. And so what I want to do is I want to look at these quotations. I want to look at their Old Testament background. And I want you to tell me, what's the promises that these passages of Scripture hold forth? What are the promises that since we have these promises, um, let us then uh, cleanse ourselves from all defilement of um, body and spirit, um, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So you get where we're going? We're going to look at the passages from the Old Testament. Uh, We're going to see how they fit in with Paul's argument, but also especially what are the promises these passages hold forth uh, to us And the first, again, is from the book of Leviticus in chapter 26. Uh, The reading in the Corinthian letter is, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now turn to Leviticus chapter 26. And this is a, a passage that comes just before the blessings and curses in chapter 26. It's, um, Again, found in the book of Leviticus, in which the whole question of atonement is central. The whole question of what God does to make the tabernacle, which was a tabernacle of his dwelling, to become a tabernacle of meeting. And uh, the sacrifices and offerings that begin the book are vital to that whole equation of how uh, the tabernacle of God's dwelling God it becomes uh, not just a dwelling for God, but a dwelling for for, for, for meeting, that God dwells with us and we dwell with him, which is what Paul's uh, concern is. Um, so let's begin in chapter 26, and we'll begin the reading uh, with verse 1. He says, You shall not make idols for yourselves, or erect an image or a pillar. You shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuaries, I am the Lord. So again, this is a prohibition against idolatry. This is a prohibition against worshipping the things that the nations worship. Not to be guilty of the practices of idolatry. Um, And it's a a prohibition of idolatry that um, tells us the answer to it is to honor God's institutions rather than man's not the practices of the nations but the requirements of God and the requirements of God principally with respect to his Sabbaths and his sanctuary what would be distinctive about Sabbaths and sanctuary um, with respect to um, keeping ourselves free from idols 
what would uh, Sabbath deal with in terms of um, its main focus? What's the Sabbath focusing upon? I'm sorry? Yeah, but you do that Tuesday and Thursday, don't you? What about the Sabbaths is special? Rest. What's that? Rest. Well, your rest, yeah, that's what you do in the day. Worship. Worship, you do that in the day. But again, you do that at other seasons and other times as well. The point is there's time that's set apart in a special way for God. So there's sacred time. There's coming away from our activities to God's activities on the day of his appointment. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The Sabbath is a holy day unto God. So we think in terms of sacred time when we think of the Sabbath day. If you're giving your time um, as, uh, for sacred time for God's institutions on the Sabbath, you're not going to do the things the, idols, the, the idolaters do because you're going to be keeping God's Sabbaths in the way of God's appointment. And for the Israelite, it would be not only the weekly Sabbath, but it will also be uh, the Sabbath uh, celebrations within the feasts and festivals that would be yearly, such as the Passover and Tabernacles. You have read the instructions with reference to those uh, seasons, those special time God cordons off in the calendar and says, in these seasons, remember this. In these seasons, do that. In these seasons, call to mind uh, what I did for you. Uh, when I kept you um, in the wilderness and your, 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 um, your clothing didn't wear out and your sandals didn't wear out and uh, I kept you from uh, all harm uh, as you went through the um, wilderness and dwelt in, in, in booths, that's the Feast of Tabernacles, or when I redeemed you from Egyptian bondage as in the Feast of the Passover. This, these, these special seasons, these sacred time, cause Israel to remember the holy acts of God on their behalf. And sacred time is set apart uh, for those purposes. Uh, the weekly Sabbath, in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth and everything that, that's in it. Therefore, the Lord said, uh, you're to labor uh, six days and the seventh day is the Sabbath unto God. Or in the Deuteronomy passage in Deuteronomy 5, is that uh, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, for you were bond slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought you out with a high hand and a holy arm. Therefore, you're to keep the Sabbath day. Interesting. Motivations to keep the Sabbath born out of creation, the creative act of God, and then the redemptive act of God, or the recreative act of God, uh, forming a nation unto himself, delivering it from Egyptian bondage. So you have holy time that God sets apart for himself. And, what, and so what about the sanctuary uh, you think about holy time when you think of the sanctuary is there something else that God set apart as, as holy it's not time but it's what place or space there is a holy space or holy place God has said that tent is holy and it has um, degrees of holiness there's the holy of holies there's the holy place um, there's the outer court and there's the camp and there's different degrees of holiness all leading to his own special presence in the midst of the sanctuary so if you keep my sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary 
in other words, if you keep my, my um, if you honor holy time and holy space, and, and use it for the ways in which God has instituted and commanded it, you will not be making idols for yourselves. You will not be giving yourselves over to the practices of the nations. But that's, you might say, everything to do with the ritual, everything to do with the institutions of um, Sabbaths and sanctuary. Uh, but then there's more. There's the, there's the morality of, of the law. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. The land shall yield its increase. Uh, the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Uh, your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. Um, you honor my time, I'm going to give you your fruit in the season. I'm going to give you uh, that which you need in the seasons of harvest. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. You'll have your land as, 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 as space uh, which God gives you uh, in which you dwell securely. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land. So, so God says, in essence, you honor my holy space and time and I will bless your space and time as well. I will bless your seasons and there will be fruitful harvests and the rain will come at the needed time and I will bless you in these ways and I will bless you in the land the space I've given to you to live the land that flows with milk and honey and I will remove harmful beasts from the land the sword shall not go through your land and you compare that with the curses that come later it's really stark and, 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 and striking and you shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword and I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you. Again, that's the language of creation. I will restore creation's blessing to you. Um, make you fruitful and multiply. I will confirm my covenant with you. Uh, you shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. And then as God gives encouragements, promises, blessing upon blessing upon blessing, uh, there's something of a chief blessing that's to be found here. I will walk among you. I will walk, walk among you. I will be in your midst. Where two or three are gathered together in my name. I will be in your midst. I will walk among you. Uh, Jesus walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks in the book of Revelation. And it's the presence of your God. Your covenant God will be with you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you will be my people I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you to walk erect interesting Paul says uh, uh, be not unequally yoked and God says in the very passage he quotes from um, I've broken the bars of your yoke you're not under Egyptian slavery any longer don't get entangled with other servitude serve me honor me make my service your delight keep my sabbaths honor my sanctuary honor holy space honor holy time I will bless your space and your time with these manifold blessings that God says I'll give to you security and prosperity making you to be fruitful and multiply and chief among all this that God does among his people is my presence will be with you my presence will be with you I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. 
And that's the part that Paul pulls out from, um, I mean, he, he draws from it in a number of places, but that's the main part he draws out in terms of the quotation. That's the chief promise that we should be concerned about. Why should we be concerned to having these promises cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God? It's because divine presence is among you. God is among you. That's his promise. I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's the first of the promises. The promise of divine presence. Okay? Any questions? You see that in Leviticus 26? Okay, there's another passage that Paul quotes. Another part of the the Katina, which is the quotation of Isaiah chapter 52. Let me just go back to 2 Corinthians and I'll read it to you and then we'll look at the Old Testament passage. It's in verse 17. He says, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. Again, we're the temple of the living God. Part of that is that God walks among us. His presence is with us. Another part of that is that there is this call of the God in whose presence we live and serve that we are to go out from the midst of something or another. We're to be separated from something or another. And we're to touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you. So the whole end of that is the welcome of God. Well, let's go back into the Old Testament and see where that's found. It's found in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. And here it's directed in terms of a, of a command. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Now, earlier on in the book of Isaiah, I, mean, I don't know how this, these things written out, but... Um, this uh, couplet of uh, command to depart, depart is also found in the preceding um, I think it's 47 or 49 if you have a cross-reference Bible maybe you can locate it for me but um, it's kind of like a bracketed, this call to come out come out, and I think, oh there it is it's um, well anyway, it's not exactly it's uh, chapter 48 and verse 20 It says, go out. Come out, come out. Go out. Well, from where? Well, from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say, Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. And again, you listen to that language from verse 21 and what's that referring to? Water flowing out of rocks. Rocks split. Water gushing out. Where where did that occur? The Exodus, right? The Exodus? Okay. Well, what's happening here? Well, the people of Israel are not in Egypt now. They're in Babylon. The curse of the covenants we read about in Leviticus 26 of captivity, of being taken out of the land, of the land itself 
that vomited out the inhabitants that were the wicked, idolatrous Canaanites, the land will vomit you out. You will be taken to another nation. You will serve them until you come to repentance, until you come to humble yourself before the Lord your God in this hope of restoration. But at least here, uh, we have uh, the return from Babylon made like unto the the, the, the redemption from from Egypt. God's going to bring about a new redemption. He's going to bring about a new exodus. You're under slavery to the Babylonians, and now you're going to be um, brought back. And really, from chapter 40 on, in the book of Isaiah, that's the backdrop. The backdrop is that the judgment of captivity has come to the nation, and now God is going to bring them back. Um, Again, the note of comfort, comfort my people, chapter 40 and verse 1. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Then it says, go up on a high mountain, in verse 9, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, behold, the Lord God comes with might, his arm rules for him, his reward is with him, with him his recompense uh, before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, he will gather the lambs in his arms, he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. What's God doing? Well, God's restoring the people whom he judged, the people whom he was in warfare with. His face was turned against them. He brought the the Babylonian armies to destroy them. And now God's going to turn his face back to them. Not against them, but before them. They've received from the Lord's hands double for all their sins. And now the note of restoration comes about in these chapters. There's going to come a time, and this, this section is written in the time um, of which uh, Cyrus has uh, come upon the scene Uh, The Babylonians are now going to be defeated and supplanted. Their policy of keeping people in captivity will be over. The Persians will come to the place of authority and tell the people go back home. Tell the people go back home. And God's call to them is to leave. The God who sent them into captivity now calls them to return uh, to the land. And they needed that call because... In the end of the day, most of them didn't return. A remnant returned. That's also spoken of in the book of Isaiah. A remnant will return, not the whole of the nation. There are thousands of Jews that remained in the what's called the diaspora, in the places where they had formerly been held captive. They settled down. They built homes. They had families. They learned the language. They weren't about to return to, um, return to Judah. Yet God calls them uh, to return. To return. Um, he says, depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Don't bring with you anything that reeks of Babylonian influence. Again, they brought out of Egypt uh, a lot of things that had Egyptian influences. They spoiled the Egyptians. They took much of their their wealth, their gold, uh, fabrics, in which it was designed for the tabernacle. Now there's no need to build a tabernacle any longer. There's no need to... um, uh, you know, God himself will be among them God himself will be with them yes there will be the restoration of the temple but his glory was not there his glory was in his word and by his spirit coming to his people uh, who believed and not just in a, 
in a, in a, in a, in a house made with hands. God does not dwell in houses made with hands, although uh, his presence was manifest in that special way for a season in the temple to declare his presence, that he is the God who walked among them. His divine presence was with the nation. Now they're to leave Babylon empty-handed. They come back home. Don't take anything with you. Don't take anything that is unclean. Purify yourselves. You who bear the vessels of the Lord. Now you know those who bore the vessels. Well, first of all, the vessels of the Lord is a reference to what? Anybody remember what happened when Nebuchadnezzar came and uh, destroyed the city? Or came actually the first time and uh, into the city and they took the first group of exiles. Daniel was among them. What else did they take? Yeah. They took the vessels from the temple. They put it into the temples of their Babylonian gods. Remember the picture of the guy who's uh, the handwriting on the wall he had taken of the, the vessels of the holy things of the temple of the Lord and he, he used them for the, his own drunken um, party and uh, God struck him down God struck him down now the vessels of the Lord were to be taken back but who could bear the vessels of the Lord wouldn't every citizen there's the work of the priests the priests would be the ones who would bring the vessels back and so that's a purified people a holy people in essence that's what all of God's people are to be we're to be a holy people and this again contrasts uh, with uh, the exodus from Egypt you should not go out in haste the exodus from Egypt they were to go out in haste they were to keep the they eat the Passover with their with their loins girded with the staff in their hand ready to leave ready to go ready and this is not to be they're to wait upon the Lord the Lord himself will go before you the God of Israel will be your rear guard. When you think of the whole picture of this return from captivity, after captivity in which God had set his face against the nations, he judged the nations for their sin, and now they had paid um, for their iniquity, and now God's calling a holy, pure people back to himself and back to the land. What's changed? Well, the whole attitude of God the whole heart of God. The God who was against them was now with them and is for them. And so what does Paul say is the whole end of this matter of um, departing and touching no unclean thing? We'll go back to 2 Corinthians. Go back to 2 Corinthians. In chapter 6. And the end of it in verse 17 is, Then I will what? Welcome you. I will welcome you. The God who spurned you, the God who judged you, the God who sent you away, the God who vomited you out of the land is now the God who's going to welcome you. So instead of disfavor, there's favor. Instead of judgment, there's grace. Instead of God's displeasure, there's not pleasure. So if we have the idea of presence the God who is present with his people as the promise of Leviticus 26 I think from Isaiah 52 you might say that the promise is the promise of God's good pleasure that God now welcomes you delights in you wants you to come to him come back to his land to be restored and to be his people once again to experience the fullness of his grace 
in redemption and restoration. And so there is this promise of his pleasure. So we have a promise of presence. We have a promise of pleasure. And then we have one final. Any questions up to this point? Because we've got one more verse in the Katina to look at. We looked at Leviticus 26. We looked at Isaiah 52. Now the, the final one is in verse 18. And I will be a father to you. See how Paul strings them along? He strings them along in a, in a rather a logical way. Um, God makes his dwelling among them. His presence is with them. Um, therefore go out of the midst of everything that's unclean. Everything that defiles. Everything that... Um, uh, bears, the, bears the stench of his displeasure to find welcome in his pleasure to find welcome and delight in his, in his, um, in his divine presence and then I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty and um, again I think this is likely a reference back to the Davidic covenant when God promises a king from David's line who will always be upon the throne of Israel. And of course you know when God came in judgment in the time of the Babylonians that the Davidic dynasty came to an end. And even though they came back to the land, uh, the Davidic king was not restored. They didn't have independence. They were under Persian rule. And then when the Persians lost, left the scene and Alexander the Great made his great um, conquests uh, conqu- and, and uh, defeated the Persians you now had uh, Greece that now governed and uh, Alexander's heirs the Seleucids and the Ptolemies uh, kicked Judah and Jerusalem around about like a, like a football uh, depending on who had the upper hand they would be ruled by the Ptolemaic kings to the north uh, we learn about uh, that guy Antiochus Epiphanes. We mentioned all this when we studied the book of Daniel years ago. And the Ptolemaeans, were, they were the rulers of the south. Again, remember, Israel often became something of a football uh, between the kings of the north, the uh, Syrians, the Babylonians in the south, uh, being the Egyptians. And the Ptolemies were the, the family of Cleopatra. Um, it's, um, you know, again, the Bible is rooted in this history. And uh, so they went back and forth, but never had really independence. Uh, there was a period, of course, you know about Hanukkah, know about the Festival of Lights, know about the conquests that they made of liberating themselves from the Syrian kings. And for a time, there were the uh, Hasmonean dynasty, it was called. But um, that was not the Davidic dynasty at all. Uh, the sons of Judas Maccabees, they were not uh, of the tribe of Judah. They were not Davidic heirs. And so there was no Davidic heir until the true Davidic heir comes, uh, our Lord Jesus, who was really the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Son of David, have mercy upon me, is what the blind man cried out in the Gospels. Jesus, the son of David, he is the true Davidic king. He's the one who comes um, in those 14 generations from Abraham to um, to David and the 14 generations from David to the carry away into Babylon and 14 generations to the Christ and I've told you the significance of those 14 generations it's David's name da, 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 David uh, Dalet Vav Dalet in the Hebrew 
uh, is the fourth letter uh, that appears twice and the sixth letter once. So, um, now did I do that right? Four, eight, nine, yeah. Eight and six is 14. It's David's dynasty. It's, Dave, it's 14 generations to the David Davidic throne. It's 14 generations of Davidic kings. It's 14 generations without a Davidic king until the next Davidic king comes upon the scene in the birth of Jesus, the son of David. And it's Jesus who ascends the throne of the universe. And it's Jesus who's the true and proper son of God. And it's Jesus through whom we become sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We become adopted sons. And so I think the point of Paul quoting this verse that refers really in its first the first glance uh, to the promise that's given to David, he sees it fulfilled in Jesus. That Jesus has taken the throne of David. Um, that's Peter's sermon at Pentecost. That he being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and slain and slew him. But him whom you put to death, God raised and placed him upon the throne. That he was promised that David would be fulfilled. The promise... Uh, let's turn to Acts 2. This is a couple of psalms that are used, but um, let me just sure I get the argument right. Just going from memory. But Acts chapter 2. Now it's Psalm 110 he quotes. Uh, but David himself did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So it's David's Lord that's to be enthroned. Not David's son. I mean, he is his son, but the son who is also his Lord. Again, remember Jesus uh, addressed the, the Pharisees along these lines. Uh, what do you think of, the, of David? Whose son is he? Well, if he's the son, why is he also the, why is he the Lord? Well, he's the Lord. Because the Lord said to him, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The one you, whom you, you put to death, God has exalted. God's enthroned. God's set upon the throne of David. Not an earthly throne, but the true throne of the universe where he reigns and he rules. and He's the son of who brings redemption. He's the son who brings us back to glory. Israel, I'm, I'm sorry, Adam was a son who failed and disobeyed. Israel was a son who failed and didn't fulfill their calling. Jesus is a son who is exalted and enthroned and, and, and given all authority in heaven and earth. And God's a father to him uh, but not just singular. There's the plural, you shall be sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. That we are a kingdom of uh, Davidic heirs to the promise because we have it in Jesus. We're made sons and daughters of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you think of the promise that's entailed in that reference to David and the reference to his sonship and the reference to his um, bringing about a multitude of sons and daughters to become sons and daughters of the living God is that we have divine paternity as well as presence and pleasure. God's our Father. God treats us as His children. As a father pities His children, so the Lord pities those that fear Him. 
There is this great delight that God has in His children, redeemed through the precious blood of Christ, made sons and daughters through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, as you think of yourself as a a Christian, as a, a part of the body of Christ, part of the church of the Lord Jesus. Um, We think of ourselves as a people, not in terms of how the world looks at us. The world passes us by and says, what's going on there? Look at how few people are in the parking lot. They can't even fill up a dinky little parking lot like that. Uh, There can't be much going on there. And yet the reality is, divine presence goes on here. The reality is, God's divine pleasure goes on uh, on here. We meet in the pleasure of the Lord our God and, and our King. The reality is divine paternity is given to each and every one of us who come to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's fatherly heart and fatherly love is with this dinky uh, group of people that meet here in Pinebush. And we possess those realities. We possess those promises. The promise of presence. The promise of pleasure. The promise of paternity. Of God who is our God and our Father, since we have these promises, beloved. Isn't that interesting that Paul seizes upon the promises as the very motivation for his exhortation that follows? You know, if you and I were to be writing this letter, we'd probably say something like, we'll find some commandments, we'll find some rules, we'll find some regulations, we'll find some ways where God says... Straighten up and fly right, <laughs> Church of Christ. And we'd say, since we have these requirements, since we have these requirements, let's get busy. Since we have these commandments, let's get busy doing them. Now, we don't diminish the, promise, the commandments of God. We don't diminish the rules and regulations of the Word of God. But they come to us in the context of promises of the promise of his presence it's all preceded and it's all over overseen by grace the grace of a God who promises his presence the grace of a God who promises his pleasure the grace of a God who promises his paternity to us as father to his children since we have these promises beloved Let's cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Stop listening to the false teachers. Stop being influenced by people that are not under Christ's yoke. Stop being determined in your walk by people who glory in appearance and not in heart. Come to a sober understanding of who we are as the church of Christ who we are as the people of God we're people in whom God dwells among whom God dwells we're people made pure we're people to whom God directs his word as, as to, as, to those who are sons and daughters And it's in light of those realities, get up and about the business of cleansing ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's a troubling thing, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't say, since we have therefore these promises beloved, 
seek God's cleansing. It doesn't say that. We think it should seek. God, it should be God's the one who cleanses, doesn't He? We can't cleanse ourselves. Although the exhortations given in the prophets make yourself clean, Isaiah says, cleanse yourselves from these things. And it's not so much that we have the ability to cleanse away our sins. And God is the one who ultimately is the one who does the cleansing. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, that they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. He says, come and let us reason together. It's God who's the God who does the cleansing. But how does he do the cleansing? He does the cleansing through uh, the provision of his grace, through the sacrifice of Christ, that comes to us through the power and ministry of his word. The cleansing agents is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all of our sins, and the word of God that brings us that message of a God who cleanses. And, And so I think the call to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit is to go to the place where cleansing happens. To find ourselves in the place where cleansing happens. We're going to have a 90 degree day today, 96 or 7 degree day today. And if you're out doing much out there, you're probably going to work up a sweat really, really quickly. And then if you're in the place uh, like the Northeast, where there's sometimes a tendency, little particles of stuff that come into the air and come from the exhaust of our cars and begin, especially on summer days, to spew spew out its pollutants. And we find it in our heads, we find it in our arms, we find grease and grime and gunk. And uh, we find ourselves at the end of the day uh, pretty uncomfortable in the stuff of our own filth and our own, our own sweat. What do you do? I hope you do what I do. Go to the place of cleansing. Turn on the tap. Do the little thing that makes the water that usually goes down in there into the tub to come out through the shower spout. And get under it. Get under the shower spout. And let the cleansing waters do its work of cleansing you. So, I think this call similar. We're dil- we're dirty, filthy. You know, Jesus says you're cleansed through the word I've given to you. But I mean, He also says that my word must abide in you. My word must abide in you. We're going to look at that later on in John 15. The word has cleansed us, but the word must abide in us. The blood of Christ must go on, cleansing us from all of our sins. Come to the place of cleansing. Come to the place where the gospel offers cleansing. Through the death of Christ for our sins. Through the word of God that cleanses us and directs us in a way that calls us to go and to sin no more. It's the word and blood that are the cleansing agents. And uh, our work is simply to put ourselves in the place where that cleansing happens. And then that cleansing is something that's to extend to the whole of our humanity. All defilement. All defilement. Of body and spirit. The word is actually sarks. It's the word for flesh. I don't know why the ESV has body there. It's the flesh. It's the flesh. It's, again, speaking of the outer man versus the inner man. And back to the chapter 4. We have that distinction uh, between the outer and the inner man. Um, and uh, the sins of the body, the sins we commit through uh, uh, our hands, our eyes, our feet, our, our tongues, um, they all need cleansing. 
Our tongue needs to be brought under the discipline of God's word. Our tongues need to be um, cleansed by the blood of Christ. We need to, again, come to the place of recognition of our accountability before God uh, through the sins that we commit in our bodies and then in our spirits. The things that linger in our minds, the questions, the doubts, the fears, the anger, the bitterness, all of the rest. All of it needs to be addressed and mortified. Again, because we don't glory in appearance. And we're concerned about what's in the heart. And in so doing, we bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Again, it's always so interesting to me that fear of God comes within context of such promises. It's not get all fraught with anxiety about whether you're in or out, whether he loves you or doesn't. But just know that this God is worthy of reverence. This God is worthy of your regard and your respect because he is a God present among us. We have his presence. And again, you know, you're in the presence of God and that should never be something that makes you comfortable with your sin that makes you comfortable with the defilement of flesh and spirit. It should always be that which brings us to wither in the face of our unfaithfulness and our inconsistencies to bring us to repentance, to bring us to the kind of repentance as we can talk about later on in chapter 7. But he's among us with his pleasure towards us. He is our father. And we we desire, desire to to please an earthly father and have a healthy regard for our father's authority over us so we are to perfect holiness or bring holiness to completion in the context of uh, that attitude of godly fear well I'm done and look at the time I did it two minutes after the normal time we cease any comments questions quickly before we conclude anything we've there is uh, maybe something you can bring up to me later and we'll take it up God willing next Lord's Day but let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to him in prayer Father we are thankful for the promises that these passages of the Old Testament do hold forth we're thankful that we are the temple of the living God we're thankful that you are present with us that your pleasure is over us that your paternity as our Father is in every way securing our well-being and our good our protection and our preservation and uh, we're thankful Lord that you are um, calling us to carry out the life of faith in that very context not out of fear but out of that security that knows that you have provided richly for us in the gospel of your dear son that the fear we owe to you is one of regard and of reverence and of uh, joyful delight in seeking your good pleasure in all that we are and in all that we do. We ask your blessing to be with us as we greet one another this morning, as we have a time of uh, fellowship and um, interaction, as we have coffee together, and then as we enter into the morning worship, meet with us, draw near, open your word to us and grant us a, a fuller sight and sense of uh, the great realities that uh, do center in uh, the truths of uh, the gospel 
of your dear Son. So look upon us with your favor, answering our prayers as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.